Welcome back to Antisocial Studies, a place for people who wish they'd stayed awake in high school. Last time, we explored the Cold War in Latin America, and it was rough. There were bananas, the CIA, poison cigars, and exploding conch shells. But don't worry, today we're just talking about modern Asia and Africa, so I'm sure it'll be a lot lighter and more uplifting. So, remember about World War II and how it discredited the idea of empire? The Allies spent the war fighting against the Nazi Empire in the name of freedom and self-determination, which backfired when European colonies or mandates were like, uh, can we have some of that, please? Plus, Europe was broke and couldn't really afford to maintain land overseas anymore. For all of those reasons and more, Asian and African nations got full independence, sometimes for the first time in thousands of years. But it wasn't easy, and the stink of imperialism still hasn't fully worn off. Today we're going back to the 20th century and decolonization, or as I like to call it, don't let the door hit you on the way out. This is Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1. Thanks, Gandhi. During World War II in the Pacific, Japanese expansion shook up colonial land holdings by temporarily kicking European powers out. After the war was over, places like Sri Lanka, Burma, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia were not super keen on letting the imperial powers back in. Some fought wars and others were granted independence, but unfortunately we don't have time to go there in detail, so let's move on. French Indochina, which included Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, devolved into war as France was not willing to give up those colonies quite so easily. During World War II, the Allied powers had supported the resistance group called the Viet Minh as they fought the Japanese, but now the war was over and France wanted its colonies back. After nine years of fighting, the French were forced to leave the colonies and the United States stepped in. Remember containment? This is just a few years after China had turned communist under Mao, and the nationalist-slash-communist forces in the North were being backed by the Soviet Union and China. The leader of North Vietnam was a guy named Ho Chi Minh. Remember him? The pissed-off colonist who was ignored at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919? Yeah, maybe they should have paid a little closer attention. The U.S.-Vietnam War lasted for 20 years, from 1955 to 1975, and it was the first defeat for the United States in its history, except sort of the War of 1812, where we basically just didn't lose. Good job, young America. But in Vietnam, we lost. Sure, some textbooks say that we pulled out of Vietnam because of pressure back home, which is true, but that's sort of like saying you were losing with only five seconds left in the game, but your mom was calling you for dinner, so you had to go home. And Vietnam is still technically communist today, so we lost. We could talk about Vietnam for days, but honestly, you should just watch the Ken Burns documentary, or Platoon, or Apocalypse Now, or Full Metal Jacket, or The Deer Hunter, or Good Morning Vietnam, or Rambo First Blood Part 1, or Forrest Gump. I'll probably do an episode on the Vietnam War sometime later when I'm teaching U.S. history, but for now, I want to focus on the largest colonial possession in Asia, the jewel in the British crown, India. Before we look at how India got to be what it is today, let's remember some of the context we've learned from world history. India is so diverse. There are 780 different languages spoken in the country today. And remember that throughout time, they often broke down into localized rule among similar ethnic or linguistic groups. The subcontinent of India is so difficult to rule that it has only ever really been effectively unified as an empire with an autocratic ruler. 
Maurya, Gupta, Delhi Sultanate, Mughal Empire, British Raj. So the modern nation states of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh today are really the outliers. They're trying something new and we're waiting to see if it's going to work. While we're at it, all of our modern nation states that we think of as permanent truths on the map are incredibly new and experimental. The rest of world history has been empires, and it's just the last 50 years or so that we're trying something else. I hope it works. So India gained independence relatively peacefully under the leadership of the Indian National Congress. Formed in 1885, this group continuously pushed for more representation of Indian colonists in the British colonial government. But after World War I, when India sent a million troops and lost 74,000 soldiers fighting for the British, they started asking for full independence. The Indian Army sent way less soldiers to fight during World War II because many refused to serve the British without a guarantee of independence. They were like, fool me in the First World War, shame on you. Fool me in the Second World War, you, uh, you can't get fooled again. Leaders like Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru were imprisoned for the duration of World War II because of their Quit India campaign that was pushing Britain to grant Indian independence regardless of the ongoing war. Some Indian nationalists actually fought for the Axis powers because Hitler had promised them independence after they defeated the Allies. But one group from within India did support the British war effort, and that was the Muslim League. Under the leadership of Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the Muslim League was pushing for independence but with a catch. They did not want India to stay united as a subcontinent after independence. They wanted to create a Muslim state out of some of the regions in the northeast and northwest of the colony. By working with the British during World War II, they were granted this right so that when India gained independence in 1947, they created two states, India and Pakistan. This idea went against the dreams of India's most famous historical figure, Mohandas Gandhi. His first name is Mohandas, but he's better known by his title Mahatma, which means great soul. Gandhi was a British-educated lawyer born to a wealthy family in India in 1869. We'll notice that this is a trend across Asia and Africa. Independence leaders were often educated in Europe. They learned from the imperialists and then turned around and used that knowledge against them, and it's awesome. In 1893, Gandhi was living and working as a lawyer in South Africa when he was thrown out of a train car in which he had had a first-class ticket because he wasn't white. This event and the atrocities he witnessed in apartheid-era South Africa turned his career towards social justice. He began organizing the Indian community that was living in South Africa to oppose racial and ethnic prejudice. And during his 20 years in South Africa, Gandhi was arrested six times. Gandhi returned to India during World War I in 1915. For the next 30 years, he organized nonviolent acts of civil disobedience to draw attention to the British occupation in India. The most famous was his Salt March to the Sea, earning him Time's Man of the Year in 1930. Salt was a lucrative product that was monopolized by the British. Indians were not allowed to mine their own salt. To raise global awareness, Gandhi walked 241 miles for 23 days from his ashram to harvest salt from the Indian Ocean. Gandhi was arrested, sparking mass protests across the country that led to the arrest of 60,000 Indians. Although the Salt March accomplished little in terms of policy, it attracted global attention and inspired other oppressed groups around the world. And now, for a quick side note about nonviolence. Gandhi did not invent nonviolence. Of course not. He was inspired originally by a letter written to him by Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace. In his Letter to a Hindu, Tolstoy argued that the Indians should confront British imperialism with love and nonviolence. 
Ghani published this letter in his own South African newspaper, and he built upon the idea. But he was also impacted by his childhood growing up in a predominantly Jain region of India. The Jain religion, as well as Hinduism and Buddhism, has an idea called ahimsa, which literally translates to nonviolence toward all living things. Gandhi took these ideas and revolutionized the act of protest by proposing civil disobedience, breaking the law in a way that is peaceful but confrontational enough to draw attention to your cause. And Gandhi wasn't the only one. In the early 1900s, Vietnamese leader Phan Chu Trinh insisted that violent resistance to French occupation was the wrong way to go. He even turned down help from Japan because they were such a militaristic society. Also in 1919, mass strikes and mostly peaceful protests in Egypt led to the British recognition of Egyptian independence just a few years later. And during World War II in 1943, 1,800 Jewish men were arrested by the Nazi Gestapo because they were married to non-Jewish wives. But for one week, their wives gathered in the streets outside the Gestapo office peacefully protesting the arrest. At the end of one week of the so-called Rosenstrauss protest, the Gestapo let the men go. But Gandhi was by far the most famous proponent of nonviolent protest, and his teachings inspired generations of civil rights advocates even after his death. African-American Bayard Rustin, an openly gay early civil rights leader, traveled to India just months after Gandhi's death to learn from, these, from those close to him. He returned home to advise Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and in his book about the Montgomery bus boycotts, Dr. King mentions Gandhi dozens of times and calls him, quote, the little brown saint of India. In this way, Gandhi and the Indian independence movement directly inspired the nonviolence of Dr. King and the mainstream civil rights movement. When Colin Kaepernick took a knee on the football field during the national anthem, he was carrying out Gandhi's teachings. Unfortunately, and very similar to Dr. King, not everyone agreed with Gandhi. Gandhi, in addition to nonviolence, was pushing for Indian unity regardless of religion. He did not want India to be split into two states. In 1948, a radical Hindu nationalist, believing Gandhi was too sympathetic to the Muslim minority, shot him in the chest three times at point-blank range. So, after World War II, it looked uncertain whether the British would allow for a two-state partition like the Muslim League wanted. They organized a direct action day, which was meant as a show of how much Indian Muslims wanted their own state. It turned into riots from both Hindus and Muslims and escalated into the Great Calcutta killings. By the end, 4,000 people were dead and a million homes were destroyed. Deciding that the two religious groups could not live together, the British agreed to a partition of India in 1947. The two nations would become India, majority Hindu, and East and West Pakistan, which was one nation that was majority Muslim. Not wanting to be in the mi minority in their new state, millions moved across borders. Refugee camps were set up for the now homeless who had left everything behind, causing disease to spread. Others were killed as new groups entered territory and took over towns and individual homes. All told, the estimates on how many died during the so-called Partition of India ranged from 200,000 to 2 million. Women were especially targeted as, as symbols of community honor, with as many as 100,000 women raped or abducted. Why was there so much violence committed on both sides during this partition? Well, for one, Britain was hesitant to provide troops in the years after World War II to maintain law and order. Also, people were not only tied to their religious community, but also to the land that they had often lived on for centuries. The new boundary lines were drawn using outdated maps and census data, and there were regions that were split between the two new states, creating disputes and long-term issues between India and Pakistan. 
One region that is still hotly contested is Kashmir, in the northwestern corner of India, or the northeastern corner of Pakistan, depending on who you ask. If we've learned anything at all, it should be that the British should never again have anything to do with drawing borders. Like, sorry Brits, you're good at a lot of things, but creating nations without causing mass violence and long-standing animosity is not one of them. A little while later, East and West Pakistan split into two separate countries, which makes sense considering they were separated by 1,000 miles of Indian territory between them. West Pakistan became just Pakistan, and East Pakistan became Bangladesh. Side note, I have a student who is from Bangladesh, and she always laments how we don't talk about Bengali independence in more detail. So, Ani, I can give you two paragraphs. How's that sound? For simplicity's sake, I'm going to call East and West Pakistan by their names today. So, Bangladesh and Pakistan. The entire nation of Pakistan, both those countries East and West, held an election, and the leader from the Bengali side won. And that was not okay with the military junta who was ruling Pakistan. And they launched an assault on Bangladesh and the hundreds of thousands who were practicing civil disobedience to protest for their independence. The Pakistani army committed a genocide against the Bengali people, with civilian death estimates ranging from 300,000, according to Pakistan, all the way up to 3 million, according to Bangladesh. Another 10,000 fled to India and more than 30,000 were left displaced inside Bangladesh. India eventually joined the war to support Bangladesh, and Pakistan surrendered in 1971. The U.S. government, under Nixon and Kissinger, supported the conservative military government of Pakistan, because, of course we did. The war and the atrocities committed against the people of Bangladesh aroused international attention. I knew about it because of the Concert for Bangladesh in New York City, organized by Beatle George Harrison and famous sitar player Ravi Shankar. No, I wasn't alive then, but their rendition of My Sweet Lord is on my all-time favorites playlist on Spotify. But more importantly, Bangladesh became an independent Muslim state in 1972. So now let's move on to another part of the world that was equally inspired by Gandhi and, as we've learned, a country that played a big role in his own ideas about nonviolent protest of a violent system. Act 2. South Africa. Or, thanks, Mandela. Okay, so just like all of the other borders in Africa, the country of South Africa doesn't make sense. It's an artificial collection of random tribes and people that were all conquered by the British. First, in 1856, the British conquered the Koza people. Now, side note, this is actually supposed to be pronounced with a click. It's like the Oza people, and I can't do it right, so I'm just going to call them Koza, and I know that's bad, but... These Koza people prompted a mass suicide on the advice of one of their priests who claimed it would help drive out the invaders, but they were still conquered by the British. Not everyone participated in this mass suicide because Nelson Mandela himself was descended from a royal family of this tribe. As mentioned in an earlier episode, the British also conquered the Zulu tribe in 1879. Finally, the British defeated the Boers, also known as the Afrikaners. These were the descendants of the Dutch who had been living in the region since the 1600s. They had the misfortune of discovering some of the largest stores of diamonds and gold in their regions, so naturally, they had to get conquered by the British. Eventually, these two groups united together to rule the black majority. South Africa became a self-governing nation-state that was still a part of the British Empire in 1934, and then a fully independent nation in 1960. 1948 was a key year for South African politics. The Afrikaner National Party that campaigned under the slogan, Apartheid, which means separateness, 
won the election, and they formally created the white segregationist government. Keep in mind that this was not unusual for the time period. Governments across Africa were ruled by white imperialists, and the U.S. was still in the era of Jim Crow. But the National Party's plan was not just to separate white people from people of color, that was already happening, but also to separate the different races from each other, and to divide the black community among tribal lines to decrease their political power. Eventually, all South Africans were categorized into four races, white, black, colored, which was like a mix of different races, sort of like the mestizos in Latin America, and Asian. As I previously mentioned, there were a lot of people from Indian Pakistan and South Africa because there was a thing called the Indian diaspora in the late 19th century. So while India was still a part of the British Empire, when they gained full control over India, a lot of those people took on jobs as indentured servants and went to other British colonies, especially in Africa, to work. In 1959, a sociologist became the leader of South Africa, and he took the government to another level. He decided that the only way for South Africa to be successful was to, quote, unscramble the region by organizing all of the different races into different geographic areas. This is called social engineering, and it's the kind of thing that may sound logical on paper when you can ignore the vastly upsetting human experiences that come with forceful relocation. But this process geographically segregated South Africa. People of color were forcefully evicted and sent to their quote-unquote homelands, although some people had never lived there in their entire life. Non-whites had to carry identification cards that would authorize their presence in restricted zones, which was basically any part of the country that wasn't their homeland. These were called pass laws, and they will be hotly protested soon. 80% of the land in South Africa was reserved for whites, even though they made up only 19% of the population. Up until 1960, most of the world didn't pay much attention to South Africa, partly because what they were doing was relatively common. Like I said, it's not okay or justified, but also not unusual. But in 1960, the world started paying attention. In Sharpeville, around 6,000 protesters marched on the police station to protest the pass laws. The South African police fired into the crowd, killing dozens, including 29 children. Photographs of the Sharpeville massacre were published around the world, including a lot of young people being shot in the back as they fled the police. International outrage led to the UN beginning the process of condemning the apartheid government. In 1973, a UN resolution identified apartheid as a crime against humanity. They called for an embargo, especially on weapons against South Africa. 91 member states voted in favor and four voted against. South Africa, obviously, Portugal, the United Kingdom, and the United States. South Africa was suspended from the UN. Interestingly, South Africa responded to this embargo by strengthening its ties to Israel, who also helped them develop their own weapons manufacturing program. As we'll learn next episode, Israel also had some experience with being a lonely country amidst hostile neighbors, and so knowing how to make your own weapons was a pretty useful skill. The South African sports teams were also banned from the 1964 Olympics after Interior Minister de Klerk, who ironically would become the South African leader that will end apartheid, he insisted that their teams would not be racially integrated. The IOC was considering letting them back in for the 1968 games, but a proposed boycott by other African nations ended this idea. It's a cool example of the ideological impact of people like Gandhi and Dr. King spreading around the world. Like, who needs guns when you can boycott? 
1976, when Afrikaans, the language of the white government, was introduced as the language of instruction in black schools, young people rose up in what became known as the Soweto Uprising. 20,000 students took part in the protests, and up to 700 were killed by South African police. June 16th is now a national holiday in South Africa called Youth Day. Think about it. It would be as if the March for Our Lives had ended with the National Guard gunning down hundreds of teenagers. You can imagine the reaction. This Soweto uprising was the largest challenge to the apartheid government, and it set off 20 years of instability and protests that will finally push the government to recognize its black citizens. During this time period, the police and army death squads carried out political assassinations, state-sponsored vigilante groups would commit attacks on blacks, and then the government would attribute it to, quote, black-on-black violence in an attempt to justify their security presence in the black communities. Out of the instability, the group that was best able to organize and control the direction of the protests was the African National Congress, or the ANC. And even though the ANC did eventually have a militant wing, the deaths attributed to them are far fewer than those attributed to the South African government and its allies. I'm not saying that makes any of it okay, but at the time the government definitely tried to paint the ANC as a militant terrorist organization. So what was the ANC? Founded in 1912, its original goal was to give voting rights to black and mixed-race Africans, and from 1940 on, it was to end apartheid. Even though they get most of the recognition today, there were really two main organizations resisting apartheid with important philosophical distinctions. The Pan-Africanist Congress, or PAC, broke away from the ANC to pursue a more aggressive strategy. The PAC asserted black African nationalism and wanted a complete overthrow of the government to take Africa back for the original Africans. On the other side, the ANC was attempting to work through the established systems and reform the existing government. They established a policy of non-racialism, claiming to work for equality for all, as they advocated on behalf of all oppressed people. They believed that the system could be reformed from within, with rights given to all citizens of South Africa, including whites. This debate is really similar to one that was going on at the same time in the United States between African Americans during the Civil Rights Movement. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. advocated for passive resistance and reform through the current legal system, like the ANC. Peaceful boycotting, pushing for change through the courts, etc. Dr. King also believed that sympathetic whites were crucial to their success. However, not everyone agreed with this. Malcolm X became the voice of the other movement that pushed for black nationalism, like the PNC. He argued that black people didn't need the help of whites. They needed to take what was theirs by uniting within their own communities— He argued for more active resistance, and although his legacy is often mistakenly associated with indiscriminate violence, he did argue that where passive resistance was failing, militant resistance might be necessary. Even the ANC eventually came to the same conclusion. They originally used solely nonviolent methods to protest apartheid, but they changed course, or they added a new strategy after the Sharpeville Massacre in 1960. The ANC was led ideologically by Nelson Mandela. He's generally seen as the Gandhi or Dr. King of South Africa, which is mostly true, except that Mandela was willing to use violence when passive resistance failed. The ANC established the militant wing called the MK, or the Spear of the Nation, after Sharpeville, and Mandela was in charge of it. But it's important to note that their acts of violence were initially acts of sabotage aimed at installations of the state. So they would bomb railroad tracks, for example. Later, as the government continued its assault on people of color, things escalated. They did turn to bombings that led to the deaths of civilians, like the Church Street bombing in Pretoria that killed 19 and injured over 200. 
Part of the reason for their turn to violence was because the political parties of the ANC and PAC had been banned. Without a legal voice, they were forced to find new ways to draw attention to their cause. With the rise of protests and international attention, leadership in the South African government began to turn toward reforms. Some of the apartheid laws were repealed in the late 70s or 1980s, although apartheid as a system was still in place. From the government's perspective, the white South Africans were riding a tiger, the black population that was growing economically aware and politically eloquent. The problem with riding a tiger, they argued, is how to dismount without getting yourself killed. They realized things were unsustainable, but they didn't know how to end it without losing all of their power or worse, their heads. They were also hesitant because of the clear links between the ANC and PAC and communism. Most leaders of the two parties were also registered members of the Communist Party. Even worse, the Soviet Union had been providing support for the anti-apartheid movement. Remember that this is still during the Cold War, when the West was willing to overlook a lot of bad things in the name of containing communism. The escalation of violence and protests in the 1980s convinced the government that there was no way of doing this with just reforms. They would need complete governmental transformation. F.W. de Klerk, the guy who got South Africa banned from the Olympics, became president of South Africa in 1989. He instituted reforms that allowed protests and released all remaining ANC prisoners except Nelson Mandela. He held talks with him instead. In 1990, de Klerk surpassed expectations and surprised the ANC when he made a speech in which he opened the way to negotiations and put everything on the table. So what made this possible? Why the change of heart? Well, by 1987, all sides had accepted that there really couldn't be an armed solution. South Africa realized that they could keep it going for 20 or 30 more years, but under really negative circumstances. And the ANC realized that a full revolution wasn't going to happen. If it hadn't happened already, it wasn't ever going to. South Africa was just concluding years of fighting in Angola with Russian and Cuban forces. They had been holding on to control of Namibia to the south of Angola to aid in the war effort. But with the end of the Angolan Civil War, the UN convinced South Africa to give up control of Namibia. The country was declared independent, and the UN oversaw relatively successful elections in the country. And this showed the South African government that there could be a peaceful solution after years of oppression, if it was done within the context of a constitutional framework. Finally, black South Africans were working their way up the social ladder despite all of the obstacles put in their way by the government. In 1970, the black share of disposable income was 20%, but by 1994, that was up to 38%. Perhaps more importantly, the white share of disposable income dropped from 70% to 50% in those 24 years. This trend increased the bargaining power of black South Africans. The economy was becoming more integrated, with young black people entering the economy at higher levels, and this made societal and legal segregation much more difficult to uphold. Ultimately, de Klerk released Mandela from prison in 1990, after 29 years behind bars. The two worked together with representatives from their parties to dismantle the apartheid system, and in 1994, Mandela was elected president of South Africa in the first completely free elections in its history. But before we move on, who was Nelson Mandela? Y'all don't think I was just going to skip over him, did you? So, Nelson Mandela was born into a royal family of the Koza tribe and was named Madiba. When he was in primary school, his teacher gave him the name Nelson as part of the tradition to give black Africans white English names. How nice of them. Mandela excelled at track and boxing, and he was incredibly intelligent. In 1939, he was admitted into an elite university that was the only higher learning opportunity available for black South Africans at the time. But he was kicked out of school after a year because he and his best friend Oliver Tambo boycotted racist university policies. 
After he returned home, he learned that a marriage had been arranged for him, so he fled to Johannesburg, where he worked as a night security guard and then a law clerk, completing his bachelor's degree by correspondence. He eventually earned a law degree, finishing it through correspondence while in prison. But during his studies, he came into contact with black and white student activists, and he developed his Dr. King-like ideology that the only way to solve South Africa's problems was for all the races to work together toward reform. After the ANC was banned, Mandela was forced to go underground and wear disguises to avoid arrest. It was then that he decided that a more radical approach to resistance was necessary, diverging from the paths of Dr. King and Mahatma Gandhi. He actually became one of the leaders of the militant wing of the ANC and said at his trial, quote, It would be wrong and unrealistic for African leaders to continue preaching peace and nonviolence at a time when the government met our peaceful demands with force. It was only when all else had failed, when all channels of peaceful protest had been barred to us, that the decision was made to embark on violent forms of political struggle. After finding evidence tying Mandela to acts of sabotage, treason, and violent conspiracy, it's amazing that he wasn't sentenced to death. Probably the only reason he wasn't killed was because at that point, the world was watching South Africa, and Mandela had become such a recognizable face and eloquent speaker. The first 18 years of his imprisonment were brutal. He was living on a former leper colony in the Robben Island prison. He lived in a small cell without a bed or plumbing, and he spent his days doing hard labor in a lime quarry. Apartheid reigned even in the prison, and Mandela and the other black inmates received fewer rations than the white prisoners. He was allowed to see his wife, Winnie, once every six months, and inmates told stories of human rights abuses by the guards, some reported being buried in the ground up to their necks and then urinated on. It was in prison that Mandela completed his law degree by correspondence from the University of London, and he mentored the other black inmates, organizing nonviolent resistance to earn better treatment. You know what they say, you can take the guy out of the civil rights movement, but you can't take the civil rights movement out of the guy. I think that's the saying, right? In 1980, his old friend from college, Oliver Tambo, now exiled in London, organized the Free Nelson Mandela campaign that made his name and face an international icon. He was actually offered his freedom with a few political compromises, but he refused to be released until apartheid was completely dismantled. In 1982, he was moved to Polesmore Prison, and six years later, he was put on house arrest. Two years later, he was released by de Klerk and began the work of building a new, multi-ethnic South African government. As president, he established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to investigate the human rights abuses of the apartheid regime. He oversaw the creation of a new constitution with a strong central government based on majority rule, but with strong prohibitions against minority discrimination, including against white people. Nelson Mandela is like South Africa's George Washington. Ah, George. There are so many other ways this could have gone. The black majority could have turned around and implemented a racist regime against the whites that had treated them so poorly. They could have kicked them out of the country completely or killed them. But because a generally peaceful, enlightened person was in charge of the transition, South Africa has been able to establish a mostly democratic society based on equality for all. I mean, today, now that Mandela's gone, there are some issues. The ANC is the main political party, and it's come to dominate the government, and some of its leaders have been less than Mandela-like. Just recently, President Jacob Zuma was forced to step down amidst corruption charges. But remember, the new South Africa is really just 25 years old. Give it some time. Decolonization in Africa. So the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa has a relatively similar story to South Africa. White governments were installed by the imperialists across the region, despite an overwhelming black majority in each country. But 
Not every country had a Nelson Mandela to guide them through the independence process along the balance beam between peaceful resistance and violent overthrow. For example, Rwanda had an incredibly horrific experience as civil war raged between two black ethnic groups in the country. During their time as a colony of Germany, the German government had favored the royal leadership of the Tutsi, who also happened to be the minority in the country. This divide-and-conquer strategy built up enormous animosity between the Hutus, who made up the majority of the country but were oppressed by the Tutsis, who were collaborating with the European imperialists to maintain power. After independence, civil war between the two groups ensued. Eventually, in 1994, the Hutu majority committed mass genocide against the Tutsis. In just 100 days, about 1 million Rwandans were killed, eliminating 70% of the Tutsi population. A heavily armed force called the Rwandan Patriotic Front ended the genocide and took control of the country. This group was mostly made up of Tutsis who had fled the country to neighboring Uganda during the 1959 Hutu Revolt for Independence. They were resentful, obviously, of being forced out of their country and watching their people being murdered in the streets. And there was a backlash against Hutus that led to the displacement of over 2 million Rwandans from their homes. Ironically, this military was backed by the Tutsi and its leader, Paul Kagame, is a Tutsi who is still the president of Rwanda today. The imperial legacy lives on. The British attempted a similar strategy in Kenya. They continually tried to pit the various tribes and ethnic groups against each other, but they weren't willing to give control of the government to one of the black groups, so it wasn't as successful as the Germans in Rwanda. The various tribes united together in Kenya, although there was some infighting, against the white colonial government during what's called the Mau Mau Uprising. Throughout the 1950s, black Kenyans waged war against the government until eventually they were granted independence in 1964. Their first president, Jomo Kenyatta, was an enlightened thinker who had met with other Pan-Africanists across the world. He was part of an elite group of new political philosophers that included W.E.B. Du Bois from the United States and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. We'll talk about him in a second. Similar to Nelson Mandela, Kenyatta was imprisoned for seven years during the war, and also like Mandela, he created a multi-ethnic government to try to forestall friction between the various tribal groups. The problem with both modern South Africa and Kenya, though, is that they created highly centralized national governments. So this makes sense for a few reasons. One, they wanted to make sure that they had enough power to control the various groups in their country that might fight or cause problems. But also, it's just the way the government has always looked in Africa. White imperialists got to have a ton of centralized power. Why not the new black governments? The problem with a highly centralized national government is that, without a lot of checks on their power, a country's success is highly dependent upon the individual person who leads the government. So, Jomo Kenyatta and Nelson Mandela wielded their power relatively effectively and fairly, but what happens when someone comes into power who isn't quite as enlightened? To answer that question, we can look at a lot of countries in Africa that developed what are so-called strongmen. Like I mentioned in a previous episode, these are men who stepped into the leadership role after the country's independence. Basically, they replaced the power of the entire European colonial government, giving that person massive control over their country's economy, legal system, and society. Many of these strong men drained their country of the natural resources for their own personal gain, and they typically emerged as warlords in the fight for independence, as opposed to political statesmen like Nelson Mandela. For example, in Uganda, you had Idi Amin, He ruled the country for eight years, killing 300,000 civilians as a brutal dictator. He was kicked out by exiles, supported by Tanzania, but he spent the rest of his life in Saudi Arabia and was never brought to justice for his crimes. 
I guess it was pretty great to be Idi Amin. Forrest Whitaker won an Oscar for it. In Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe's rule began in 1980. Last year, in November of 2017, when the news broke that Mugabe was stepping down as president, I said, aloud to no one, he's still alive? I couldn't believe it. He'd been ruling since 1980. Mugabe started out as a more intellectual ruler. He was a teacher, giving me hope that I too can one day take over a country, and he encouraged conciliation with the white minority that had ruled southern Rhodesia. This was the name of Zimbabwe during colonial times. Remember Cecil Rhodes, the diamond guy? Yeah, this was part of his territory that he got to name after himself. But more recently, Mugabe instituted extreme economic measures, like taking over white-owned commercial farms. Zimbabwe's economy is a complete wreck. In 2008, the inflation rate was 80 billion percent. I don't even know what that means. Like, in 2008, one U.S. dollar was worth 2.6 billion Zimbabwe dollars. What? But my favorite strongman, and not in a I really like this guy kind of way, but in a this guy is so insane it's weirdly fascinating to learn about him way, is Mobutu Sese Seko of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He was chief of staff for the army and backed by the United States and Belgium, who was hoping to keep some of the trading relations and land that it had had during its colonial rule of the Congo. He overthrew the democratically elected president. Mobutu Sisiseko's big initiative was to re-Africanize the country and eliminate any vestige of European influence. That's why he renamed the country Zaire. They changed it back when he died in 1997. He's typically seen wearing a leopard-skin, fez-like hat. But this initiative is ironic considering he was backed by the United States, thanks to his strong anti-communist stance, and he amassed a ton of personal wealth by stealing from his own country. His government forced political scientists to create a new type of government, a kleptocracy, or a government whose leader acts like a kleptomaniac because he steals so much of its national wealth. It's estimated that his personal wealth, mostly hidden away in Swiss banks, totaled up to $15 billion. He took private jets to Paris just for lunch and reportedly had fleets of Mercedes-Benzes. Also, when he became president, he changed his name. His birth name was Joseph Mobutu, but he changed it to a name that translates to, quote, the all-powerful warrior who, because of his endurance and inflexible will to win, goes from conquest to conquest, leaving fire in his wake. End quote. I mean, he's a terrible human being, but, like, that's some Alexander Caesar Napoleon-level ego right there. He was expelled from the country in 1997, but he was already suffering from cancer and he died only three months later. In northern Africa, Algeria was forced to fight a brutal war against France for its independence. Algiers, the capital city on the Mediterranean, was very European, and it was home to many French people, and it was a vacation destination. In a lot of ways, Algeria was like France's Cuba. Similar to how American citizens and businesses viewed Havana as an almost extension of Florida, the French sort of thought of Algeria as part of its own country, albeit without their rights and privileges. The Algerian Civil War, fought from 1954 to 1962, was really one of the reasons why the French had to pull out of Indochina. They couldn't afford to fight both wars, so they picked Algeria. The war also contains a lot of lessons for how to fight a modern war on terror. The FLN, or National Liberation Front, organized itself a lot like modern terrorist organizations. Members often didn't know of anyone else in the movement, so that if they were captured, they didn't have any useful information to give to the French. And whenever one perceived leader was captured, others just popped up in his place. 
There's an incredible movie called The Battle of Algiers, made in 1966. It's so impressive and thorough that the Pentagon screened the film for its leadership in 2003 to offer insight into the newly begun Iraq War. Like, you should watch it. The French eventually got bogged down in the war. In that way, it was sort of like their Vietnam War, and eventually Charles de Gaulle declared that the Algerian people had the right to determine their own fate. In 1962, Algeria officially became independent from France. The last leader that I really want you to know about is Kwame Nkrumah. Nkrumah grew up in the Gold Coast, now called Ghana, and he was educated in the United States. He was a teacher, but he went back to school and earned degrees in philosophy and education from the University of Pennsylvania. Again, he's just adding fuel to the fire of my dreams to go from teacher to ruler of the world. At university, he studied Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. Uh-oh. And he also read a lot from Marcus Garvey, an African-American who advocated for a united black nationalism around the world. Nkrumah then moved to England, where he organized a pan-African congress in 1945. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya was there. W.E.B. Du Bois of the United States was in attendance. It was like a continental congress of enlightened black leaders who all discussed how to help each other in their quest for black liberation. During Ghana's push for independence, Nkrumah organized what he called positive action. Inspired by other activists around the globe, this included nonviolent protests, strikes, and non-cooperation with British authorities. Although he was arrested, the British had allowed for a slow move toward independence by overseeing parliamentary elections. While in prison, Nkrumah was elected to parliament, and he eventually became the first prime minister, overseeing the transition to complete independence. In 1957, Ghana was officially free from British colonial rule and they became the first African nation to achieve full political and economic independence from imperialism. Way to go, Ghana! Much like other first African leaders, his government was fairly authoritarian with a strong centralized government, but he used his power to institute social improvements to the country. He built new roads, schools, and health facilities. And he also campaigned for wider African unity, wanting a larger political organization of newly independent African countries, sort of like the EU. Unfortunately, he lost focus on his own country, and they began to spend too much money, and he looked to communist countries to help him. Oh, no. With the economy in a nosedive, a growing resistance movement opposed his government. He increasingly turned to more dictator-like governing strategies, and he was overthrown by the military while on a trip to China. And he died of cancer while in exile a few years later. Not surprisingly, it was later discovered that the United States secretly supported this military overthrow of Nkrumah. That's what you get for consorting with communists. To me, Kwame Nkrumah is a really great and sad example of the problems Africa faced after independence. He was an ideal leader on paper. He grew up outside of the elite. He was Western educated with his mind toward unity and improvement for Africans. But the structures and legacy that imperialism left in Africa have made it so difficult to get it right. Think about it. Their economy is geared around taking natural resources out of the country to the benefit of more industrialized nations or companies. The government tends toward one-man authoritarian rule, mimicking the colonial governments that came before. And the infrastructure is so lacking, but it takes so much money to build it up that leaders often have to take their country into extreme debt to provide roads and hospitals. In our mind today, we look at the news about Africa and see mostly negative things. We're like, come on, Africa, get it together. But remember, they haven't been able to completely rule themselves since the post-classical era, like since Mansa Musa days. The slave trade decimated their population, imperialism structured their economies to benefit the leadership and foreign companies, 
and often the independence movement exacerbated tribal tensions. Not to mention the fact that their borders, based on the Berlin Conference, make absolutely no sense. Africa is a great case study for the entire future of the so-called Third World. All of the places that have been the subjects of imperialism, basically the Southern Hemisphere, Latin America, Africa, and Asia, they're still trying to find their place in this new globalized world. They haven't had a lot of time to figure it out yet, and the so-called developed world isn't doing much to make it easier. Think about it. They come into independence right at the moment when the West is trying to break down barriers to trade. That's fine for the U.S. and Europe, but there's a reason those barriers are called protectionist. They're meant to protect domestic economies from being overrun by outsiders who are more developed. I mean, the U.S. did it throughout the 1800s to protect us from the more developed European economies. So... They finally push their way out of colonialism, only to have the industrialized world telling them that the only way they can get loans or have businesses set up shop in their country is if they open up their economy to the new globalized trade. And then their economy gets flooded with cheaper products from the U.S. and China so that their own producers can't compete. Add on to this the fact that they became independent right when the environmental movement was gaining steam. Ugh. International groups are pushing for all countries to lower their pollution rates. Meanwhile, Africa's like, oh, come on. The U.S. and Europe have had 300 years to pollute all they want during their industrial revolutions. We just want to build one coal plant to try to catch up. Now, for the record, I am completely 100% anti-pollution, but it's just a really good example of how exasperating it must be to be in a country in the Southern Hemisphere right now. All of this is to say, give them time. Think about how long it took Europe to recover after the fall of Rome. It was like a thousand years. And things are already looking up in Africa. They have a young population with a growing labor pool, and jobs are growing 1% faster than the workforce, so there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Urbanization and increasing consumption is making Africans a new, highly sought-after consumer for global companies. And finally, since Africa doesn't have a ton of established infrastructure to work around, they're like weirdly well-positioned for the new technological advancements that are coming. Like They don't have any old structures in their way. East Africa is the global leader in mobile banking, and smartphone ownership across Africa is expected to rise from 2% in 2010 to 50% in just 10 years. And spending on infrastructure itself in Africa has doubled over the last decade. Anyway, it's important to look at current events and see them as a continuation of history. Humans want to look at the world and think of it as the way it is, the way it has been, and the way it always will be. But history shows us that it's the exact opposite. Things are always changing. Just 75 years ago, the idea of self-determination was laughed at by many. The thought that the world map would look so complicated, with so many different nations all trying to assert their own sovereignty, would have seemed crazy. Remember, most of world history has been ruled by massive empires. Individual rights, individual voices, and the right to live under a government that looks like you and represents you, these are all experiments that we're just trying out. So, everyone keep your fingers crossed. Or, if you prefer to be ruled by an emperor, let me know, and I'll start my global campaign a few years earlier than planned. To be continued. For a transcript of today's episode, check out antisocialstudies.org. Join me next time on Antisocial Studies as we explore the modern Middle East, or who knew religion was so important to people? Don't forget that if you like what I'm doing, please subscribe to my podcast so you'll know when the next episodes are up. And if you really like what I'm doing, then go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give me a review. Thanks.